0: Okay, Palm Sunday. You know, we're not a liturgical church, but in um, Holy Week, we like to follow the liturgy. And I don't know if any of you know about the liturgy. Um, you know, in liturgical churches like the Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, High um, uh, Lutheran and Episcopal and Methodist churches, there is an annual cycle. That uh, the church goes through. And each day of the year has a significant scripture reading attached to it. And in the course of one year or three years, depending on the cycle, you go through the entire circuit of scripture and the entire story uh, of the faith walk. And it's a beautiful thing. Um, we're less formal than that, but in Holy Week, we like to kind of follow. Starting with Palm Sunday, Tomorrow is Fig Monday, you probably never heard that one before. <coughs> this is where Jesus curses the fig tree and also cleanses the temple. And then there is Holy Tuesday, and that is associated with the ten virgins, the foolish ones and the wise ones who have the Bible and don't have the oil. There's Spy Wednesday, which deals with uh, Judas and his conspiracy with the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus. And then there's Monday, Thursday. You might have heard that one before. And that is a busy day. That has a whole... Lord's Supper, communion, the washing of the feet, and the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of that is associated with Monday Thursday. And then Good Friday, of course, which is the crucifixion and burial. Holy Saturday is a day of complete rest. Jesus is in the tomb, in the grave, and anticipating, of course, Easter Sunday and resurrection. So, moving through that liturgy is what we're doing. And if you're signed up on our email list, we're giving little devotionals every morning, which will kind of you know, just put a little bit more into what is going on in those scriptural passages and why they were important enough to the church over a period of 2,000 years to build this liturgy around them. And if you'd like to be on the email list, uh, Frank can help you there. <laughs> it's something to throw on his plate. But this morning is Palm Sunday, and we want to talk about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And, uh, and this is kicking off Holy Week which all happens within Jerusalem and you know, the surrounding area. How many of you were here last week? Okay, and heard Pastor Frank speak. Didn't you do a great job? Yeah. One of the things that, the en- that he ended with, which is probably the most striking part of his um, his talk, was his dream that he told us about. And for those of you who weren't there, those of you who don't remember, um, Frank dreamt that he was walking on a, deserted road through open countryside. And somehow he knew that this was heaven, this was the afterlife. And up in the distance there were some buildings and he knew that he needed to get there. And so he's walking down the road toward these buildings. And at some point he becomes aware of two figures on the road ahead of him, uh, also walking. And one of them turns around and sees him. And this big broad smile happens and he, he recognizes him. He turns and he taps the other one on the shoulder. He turns and a big broad smile. And he recognizes them as Jesus and Father God. And at that point, they can make a beeline for him. And they come running, really arms wide, robes flapping. The right? No. <laughs> I'm I imagined it in my mind. Then <laughs> <laughs> he got the big hug and the big welcome. It was just a beautiful moment. And it's so reminiscent of the prodigal son, of course, uh, where the prodigal comes back. And even before he can get out his rehearsed um, speech to his dad to just bring him back as a higher hand. Um, the father's already enveloped him. And it's just, and the scripture says he couldn't stop kissing him. That's the sense of it. Not just that he kissed him, but he was kissing him. He kept kissing him. There was not a time that he wasn't kissing him in that long embrace. And then he drove the great party for him. And so I loved that dream that he had. A little envious because I haven't had a dream quite like that right? one. You know, I didn't have work dreams. What's that all about? <laughs> but as I was thinking about this, and in light of what we're going to talk about today in Palm Sunday, you know, let me put it this way. In, in another lifetime, I was on a, in a traveling trip. I was caught up with people. We traveled all over the uh, United States. And uh, we were in the Midwest someplace, and we were in a uh, home for uh, Down Syndrome children. And so we were playing for the Down Syndrome kids. Now all of them were just kids. Now there were some some adults, 30 year olds and and so on and so forth, but of course they they were like 5 and 4 year olds in terms of their, their development. And we were setting up for the show. And, um, of course, we had our, our leisure suits on, the polyester horrible thing we go back in the 70s. And the girls had these little miniskirts on. And there was this one girl that was standing near the stage. And from across the courtyard comes this big, huge, 30-year-old man, six feet, you know, I don't know how many pounds clearly down syndrome, just running for her with arms open wide and that big grin on her face. And, and she is just turning wide. And of course, all the staff is running for them. You know, that was a little bit different experience with the arms open wide and, and running. You know? And I think that's probably a lot of what we do when we see someone approaching us. The first thought is not welcome. The first thought is often trepidation. The first thought is, what is going on here? You know? I heard the story of an ethics professor giving a test to his class, and I don't even know if it's true. Doesn't really matter if it's urban myth or not, because the point will be there for you. He was giving a test on ethics to his <coughs> kid, and as they were coming across the campus to, to come to the hall where the test was going to be administered, there were people that needed help along the way. And they were trying to get their attention and trying to get them to stop and help them, you know, on the courtyard and the steps and building. And most of the students just for rushing because they had to get to the test on time. They needed to pass this test. And a few did stop and help these people. What it turned out is that it was a setup. The professor had set these people up to accost the students on the way, to petition them for help. And the ones that passed the test were the ones who didn't take the test because they had actually stopped to help whoever it was that needed help. Now, there's something about the way that we, we approach life about our focus on the destination that keeps us from seeing what is going on right in front of us. I remember the last time I picked up a hitchhiker. I was coming back from a, a church service, and here's this guy standing on the, uh, right on the on-rack to the freeway that I was getting him with a gas can. So I figured, oh, he ran out of gas, I'm going to help him. As soon as he got in the car, I realized <laughs> the gas can was just a, a ruse to be able to get a ride. Yeah, this guy had obviously slept in the bushes last night. He had that lovely combination of smells. And um, leery eyes and everything. But you know what? We ended up having a really good conversation. I dropped him off at a Denny's going north with a little bit of money to get a meal, hopefully, and a little pocket Bible making a square in the back pocket of his jeans as he walked away. But how is it that we go through life seeing the people all around us and not connecting with them, not necessarily even noticing them, You know, the whole New York thing about people just stepping over, people sleeping on the sidewalks, and and we don't tend to see the humanity around us. We tend to go through our days just not really paying attention, not really present, sleepwalking, if you will, through our moments, judging which moments are significant, which moments are insignificant, which people are significant, which people are insignificant. We make all of these value judgments now, this isn't just to tell you to do good deeds. This isn't about just telling you, you know, please stop and help people. It really isn't about that. What it has to do is with our basic attitude toward life. How do we view life? What is important to us? How do we look at our moments and the people around us? I wanted to read um, just a little quote from Mother Teresa. And it's at the top of the bulletins. This is kind of a compilation of of, uh, several different quotes of hers. She says, I have the opportunity to be be with Jesus 24 hours a day. Now remember, she was working the houses of the poor in Calcutta, working with the, the poorest of the poor, the untouchables, the dying. I have an opportunity to be with Jesus 24 hours a day, seeking the face of God in everything, everyone, all the time, and his hand in every happening. This is what it means to be contemplative in the heart of the world. Seeing and adoring the presence of Jesus, especially in the lowly appearance of bread. He's talking about communion there. And in the distressing disguise of the poor. Each one of them is Jesus in disguise. You see, it's not about doing good deeds. It's about seeing Jesus, seeing the Father as they are. Not as we imagine them to be, but as they really are, a part of everything, every breath, everything that we see, behind every face, every conversation that we have. That's what she's talking about here. Now we imagine that we know Jesus, right? We can imagine that. In fact, want we'll to do a little experiment here. Everybody close your eyes and bring Jesus to your mind's eye. Imagine Jesus' face right in front of you. Frank saw him on the road. He knew who he was instantly. Who is Jesus for you? Can you see him? All right. Now open your eyes and look at the picture in your bulletins. Is that what you saw? <laughs> I would imagine not. Not. We have a a cultural imagining of Jesus. We have a way of seeing Jesus that is traditional, that has been handed down to us in Western tradition. He's tall, he's got long hair, he's got blue eyes, he's got the apple nose, he's got those chiseled features. We know Jesus, that Jesus. But this is a forensic anthropologist's take on what Jesus would have looked like now, how do we know that Jesus would look like the average Galilean male in the first century? Couldn't he have been different? Yeah, he could have been different. Something to be said about recessive genes. He could have blue Louie. But think about this. At the Garden of Gethsemane, which is happening on Monday, Thursday, hence, Judas had to be hired conspiratorially to point Jesus out because nobody knew who he was in the crowd. If Jesus had blue eyes, if Jesus had long hair, if Jesus stood out so significantly from the rest of Galilean males and traditional Jews of the period, that would have been the first thing that you would lead with. It probably would have been recorded in the Gospels themselves because it was so noteworthy. And the authorities wouldn't have had to hire someone to point him out so that they could arrest him. The clues in the New Testament are telling us that Jesus looked like everybody else. And do you know what everybody else looked like? You know the average height of a Galilean male in the first century? Five foot one. Five foot one. Average weight, 110 pounds. See, we don't have a sense. (laughs) We don't have a sense for caloric intake and all the other factors that kept people small in the ancient world. Now imagine Jesus again. Dark, short hair, short cropped beard, because that was the style. Paul says it was disgraceful for a man to have long hair in one of his epistles. Dark skin, weathered because he worked outside, probably as a carpenter or some other workman. Dark eyes, and short. You're looking down at Jesus. He would almost look like a hobbit to you. (laughs) That's just the physical part of it. What about the other attributes of Jesus that would probably be so alien to us? His Judaism. He was an ultra-observant Jew. Other things that would be so different that don't comport with what we imagine. See, we're trying to imagine that we know Jesus and think that we would know him if we met him, but he could present so differently that things are going to be different if we don't prepare ourselves if we don't prepare ourselves to really see if we don't prepare ourselves to accept that greeting so that we don't recoil like that girl did from the the impending (laughs) Down Syndrome kid that we're we're ready to say oh yes this is safe this is what I'm here for this is what life is all about rather than making an end run because we're supposed to get to those buildings over there don't bother me now I gotta get over there that's where I'm supposed to be What is it in life that prepares us to be able to see, recognize, accept, and embrace truth when it really is presented to us right here and right now? And this is the message of Palm Sunday. This is really, for my money, is what Palm Sunday is all about. It's about the triumphal entry. Jesus coming back into Jerusalem. He has stayed out of Jerusalem for as long as he could. Because as his fame was growing, he knew that the threat was growing as well. And there's no accident that Palm Sunday is sandwiched in between Lazarus Saturday, where he raises Lazarus from the dead, and Fig Monday, where he cleanses the temple. Because raising Lazarus from the dead is also symbolic at the pinnacle of his fame in the entire region. He had been doing increasingly dramatic miracles and healings. And now he actually raises his friend from the dead and the word spreads like wildfire. And then the next day after his entry, he cleanses the temple. He goes in and overturns all the money changers' temple. So between the height of his fame and the absolute height of the threat that he posed to the religious authorities of that time is this triumphal entry. And it's hard for us to overestimate the boiling pot that was Judea in the first century. By the time Jesus is on the scene, the Romans have been occupying the land for about 100 years, almost 100 years. And it never rested well with the Jews because that 100 years represented almost 400 solid years of occupation from different reigning powers in the region. And they were sick of it. And they knew that their promise from their God to Abraham was that they were supposed to be a sovereign nation, a light among the Gentiles, and here they were under the boot of Rome. And at the beginning of the first century of this common era, the zealots, the Canaim, were the ones who became more and more the terrorists of their day, trying to overthrow Roman power, destabilize the region, and foment a revolution. And so here comes Jesus. They were looking for a messiah. They were looking for Mashiach. They were looking for the one who was going to be the warrior king that was going to be able to galvanize the people, start the revolution, throw out the Romans and reestablish. And they were now fixated on Jesus as being that man. His fame had increased. The people were around him. And as he enters into Jerusalem, the people go crazy. And they, they are just greeting him like a conquering king. Now, why was Jesus there in the first place? He was there because this was one of the three pilgrimage festivals that all Jews were required to go back to the temple, go back to Jerusalem. And Jesus, as I said, was an ultra-observant Jew. He never missed his obligation under the law. He didn't just follow rules. That was part of what he was doing. He was trying to fulfill the law. But in the process, he followed the law. They followed it from the inside out and not the outside in. And so Pesach, the Passover, was one of the three pilgrimage festivals. Always in the spring, it was coinciding with the barley harvest. Fifty days later, there's going to be Shavuot, which would, can coincide with the wheat harvest. And then at the end of the year, there was Sukkot, which was the grapes and the, uh, and the other beans and so on and so forth. All this that were harvested then. All of the main festivals were originally agricultural festivals. But here's Jesus going back to Jerusalem to attend to his duties, even though his disciples are begging him not to. They know the danger. They know what's going on. Jesus knows it too. But he also has this higher calling that he is moving toward. So Jesus travels from Jericho into Jerusalem. And let's read the uh, passage there so we can get a feel for how Matthew sets it up. Oh, I skipped Isaiah 53, didn't I? got so excited there. Let's just read Isaiah 53, because here's another little bit. Isaiah 53 is the suffering service section, and it's poetry, it's Jewish poetry, and so it's understood to be metaphorical. Actually the he there, the, the Mashiach, the Messiah that he's referring to, was also a personification of the entire nation of Israel. But the Jews from that period forward also looked at it as a representation of the Messiah, what he was going to be like, who he was going to be. And look how Isaiah characterizes him. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him or appearance that that we should be attracted to him. So once again, here's this description of Jesus that kind of puts him on the side. Now we would walk right past him without a second glance if we aren't attuned to him. If we aren't ready to accept him as he is when we see him. Now on to Matthew 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Sion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now what's that prophecy that they're talking about? This is going back to Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Sion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. He is righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be cut off and he will speak shalom to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this is the prophecy that the people of Israel had known for 200 plus years. And so here is Jesus entering Jerusalem on the donkey. Now, why the donkey? What's up with the donkey? It's funny, there was a a Persian king, Shevor, when he was hearing the story, he said, why wasn't he riding a horse? Because the horse in the ancient world, and especially the Near East, was a symbol of war. If a king entered the city on a horse, he was coming to bring war. He was coming to oppress. He was coming to occupy. But if he came on a donkey, he was coming in peace. And this was that this was known throughout the Near East. To come on a donkey is to come in peace. To come on the foal of a donkey, on the colt of a donkey, a little baby donkey, is just making the point that much finer. This goes. This practice goes all the way back to David in in uh, Jewish circles. And so he comes in on the on the donkey. The disciples went, and Jesus did, and had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And so this was all just regular, traditional, cultural practice to spread your cloaks, your mantle, before the king who enters, to wave the palm branches. And what is it about palm branches? Well, palms were the symbol of triumph and the symbol of victory throughout the ancient world. And for Judaism, the date palm was a symbol of peace and a symbol of plenty. And so it was customary for people to wave the palm fronds to the victorious king as he came back into their midst. And here comes Jesus on the donkey, which is a symbol of peace. They're waving the day palms, which is a symbol of peace and of plenty. They were looking forward to a new era, where they weren't oppressed by Rome. And then this Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That harkens back to Psalms 118, verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save us now, we beg you, Lord. Lord, we beg you, send prosperity now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Save us now, we beg you, O Lord. Literally, in Hebrew, that is hoshiana anayave. Hoshiana. Hoshiana is where we get Hosanna. And it's translated and transliterated into our language. Hoshiana. So save us. Literally, save us, we beseech you. It's what they're screaming and crying to Jesus as they wave these palm prongs. And so the question then becomes, I suppose, save us from what? Right? What are we saving us from? What is this all about? Well, that depends on who you ask. All of this has to do with people's points of view. There are four major groups in this scene. And if you can just imagine it like a movie, you've probably seen the scene in movies over and over again. All the people, and you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're watching from the, from the porticos, and you got the Roman guards over here, you know, and you've got the people and the zealots all mixed in. All of these people, in all of this cacophony, all having different reactions to the same thing that's going on before them. And so for the people, and for the zealots, who was this group that was trying to destabilize Roman power, Jesus, for them, is representing this warrior king that they were looking for, this Mashiach, this Messiah. Saved from what? They wanted to be saved from Roman occupation. They wanted to be saved from Roman power, from Roman cruelty, from Roman taxes. They wanted to be able to keep more of what they worked for and what they earned, like anybody would. But that's what they were looking for. Through their need, through their desires, they saw what they wanted to see. They saw the coming of this, or the building, the making of this warrior king who was building his base, his political base, if you will, his army, so that he could then move into the next phase of his reign as they saw it. Then there's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are the religious leaders. These are the ones who kept and ran the temple. What do they see when they see Jesus? Well, they see Jesus as a threat. They need to be saved from the threat that Jesus opposed, uh, uh, you know, proposes to their way of life. The Pharisees got their power directly from the people because they were the lawyers of the law, the self appointed lawyers of the law. No one could figure out the law anymore. They made it so complex. I lawyers do that. aids <laughs> well, not lawyers, lawmakers. <laughs> But he couldn't figure it out, so they had to go to the Pharisees just to be able to be declared clean enough to be able to do commerce and be part of the community. And the Sadducees were the ones who were in charge of the temple. They were the ones who actually declared the people clean after they were sent there by the Pharisees. And so they had a kind of a two-step thing going on here with the people. And Jesus was trying to cut out the middleman. He was trying to get the people directly connected with their father again since they had been separated over the last few centuries by this growing power within their own religion. And Jesus was that threat. The people were actually listening to him and not to them, and that's dangerous. Then you have the Romans. They looked at Jesus in the same way. He was a threat to their power base, just different power base. They were concerned about the religious trappings. They didn't care. When they conquered a people, you could practice whatever you wanted to practice as long as you kept the taxes flowing back to Rome. The Roman Empire was sort of soulless in that way. It didn't have any really strong beliefs other than its own power, other than the money that they needed to keep the the gears running in their own machinery. And so they saw, they were worried, save us from riots, save us from sedition, save us from a coming revolution. That's what they were looking at when they saw Jesus, and they just needed to make sure that that didn't happen. And then there were Jesus' own followers What were they looking at when they saw Jesus? Well, they saw the Mashiach as well. They were following him because they believed that he was going to be this Messiah, this warrior king. But it was going to be different with them because they were on the inside. They were the ones who were there from the beginning. They were going to be able to ride Jesus' coattails to a power and to a glory that they had never known before. Because Jesus' followers came from the margins. Jesus' followers came from the poorest of the poor, the backwater, the people that nobody else would give a second glance to. Jesus gave them the first glance and pulled them in. But they misunderstood. In just the chapter right before this one, chapter 20, I don't have it in your bulletins because I didn't have space, but the chapter right before, James and John approached Jesus with their mother to ask that in his coming kingdom they want to be able to sit on his right hand and his left hand. In other words, they want to be the second in command. And they sent their mother to lobby for them to try to make this happen. But Jesus answers, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? If you want to be second in command to my kingdom, I know you have an imagination, you have an image of what that is, but you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right hand and on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. There's Jesus again, always showing identity with the Father. All action is as if the Father did it in his presence. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. So now they're fighting between each other. You know, they're asking for authority over the rest of them. So now they're all fighting. But Jesus called them to himself. Come on, kids. And he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's Jesus giving us a self-portrait. He's trying to show us who he really is. He's always trying to show us who he really is and thereby show us who the Father really is. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He didn't come to create the tip of the, of the pyramid where he could be above everyone else. He was at the bottom serving, washing the feet. But they didn't get it here, you know, would they get it at the Last Supper when he washes their feet? This is such a radical message in that culture and in ours. It is so hard for us to get the fact that Jesus was a servant leader. That Jesus was not afraid to be vulnerable at the edges of life. He's trying to show us who we, he is, but we just keep seeing what we want to see. But our fear dictates that we need to see. It keeps coming back to that. Now in five days, from Palm Sunday to Good Friday, the people are going to go from Hoshiana, from Hosanna, to blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify him. How quickly we turn on those who disappoint us. Huh? It's in the human nature. But Jesus is not giving us what we want. That's not his mission. He's inviting us to see what is real. What is true. That's a very different thing. He is not afraid to show us what is real. In the face of all our petitions. All our save us from this and save us from that. He's just showing us. This is who I am. This is who my father is. This is what reality looks like. Come and see. And what is real? Who is this Jesus who's riding a donkey into our lives? Have you really ever considered that Jesus? Outside of all the cultural trappings, outside of all of your felt needs, outside of all the religious understanding, theological understanding. At Matthew 16, Jesus asks a central question to his followers. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? They all have a lot of different answers. But that is the question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he to you? Because Jesus is so radical in who he really is. In this window to ultimate reality that he's providing then it's upsetting to us. If you're not upset, then you're not really considering who Jesus really is. And that sounds weird to say, but if it hasn't disturbed you, if it hasn't disoriented you, if it hasn't just rocked your world, then how can you say that you've really considered who Jesus is and not just allow him to pass through your own filter of belief, your own filter of felt need? So that he morphs into what you already know, already are familiar with. Because if you really meet the authentic Jesus, you cannot remain unchanged. It's impossible. Jesus is that agent for change. Are you afraid of change? Well, then you're invested in something going on right here and right now. You're on the inside looking out. If you're afraid of change. And you may not feel like you have anything, but you're invested in it, whatever it is, if you don't want change, right? And Jesus will be a threat to your power base, the real Jesus, as you confront him for what he is. How do you know if you're in that category? Well, how do you react? What's your first reaction when you hear something new? Something different. Something that really kind of spins your head around for a second. Are you immediately defensive? Outraged? You know? Do you begin debating right away? You go, ah, that can't be right, we gotta figure this thing out. Judging? Putting down the person who is bringing you this horrible news, this agent of change? Or are you intrigued? Does a smile start spreading across your face? Do you have a desire to learn more, to hear more, to try to figure out if this is true or not? What's your initial reaction? If you're afraid of change, then Jesus is a threat to your power base, a threat to your ability to control your environment as well as you can control it. And Jesus is pointing out your fear. Jesus is pointing out where you really place your trust and not in the God where you may say you place your trust. Or are you afraid of not changing? (laughs) That would be the flip side, I suppose. Well, if you're afraid of not changing, then you're marginalized. You're at the fringes. You're in a difficult situation that you want to change and you're afraid that it's not going to happen. Then for you, Jesus is the Savior in in the sense that Jesus is the fixer. He's the one who's going to come and fix all our problems. He's going to throw the Romans out. Metaphorically, whatever the Romans are in your life, He's going to throw them out. That's what you're looking for with Him. You're looking to get fixed. Maybe he's your ticket to the big time because you imagine some great ministry or something that you're going to do in the future with Jesus' help, with God's help. Not happening now. We're looking to be saved from an anonymous life. Something better. But Jesus is not here to fix our problems. He's giving us an invitation to see what is really true. And that's not the same thing. Although, once imbued with truth, once having that blessed assurance that all things are going to be okay, we're much more empowered to fix the problems that we face. Or to be able to move through them with perseverance, with balance, even if we can't fix them. The problems become less important in our lives as the real perspective of truth starts to come through. This is what Palm Sunday is all about. When are we confronted by this real Jesus? Take a look at Luke 19, chapter verse 41. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. One of two times the New Testament reports Jesus is weeping. And he says, If you had known in this day even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That occurred 40 years later when Titus rolled in. They siege to Jerusalem because the people had incited their revolution. They had what they wanted. They got their, revolu- their revolution. and the Romans flattened them, burned the city to the ground, destroyed the temple. And the siege was horrible With the cost of over a million Jewish lives, ancient historians estimate. But they got their revolution. They got what they wanted. You see, the tragedy of Palm Sunday is that the people did not recognize the time of their visitation. The tragedy of Palm Sunday is the people did not see Jesus for who he was. How much power could he have given? He's riding on a donkey. The colt of a donkey. Every time power was trying to put on his shoulders, he threw it off, saying, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a different world. It's a different economy. It's a different way of living life. Romans or no Romans makes no never mind. If you are living this kingdom that I am bringing you, that is not out there someplace, that you can get by revolution or acquisition, it's right here and it's right now, and you can't acquire it. You can only accept and receive it. Can you understand that? Can you understand what I'm trying to tell you? You know, the irony is, Hoshiana, save us, we beseech you misses the complete point of what the whole purpose, what the whole point, what the whole person of salvation really is. Because we're still looking out there someplace, Lord. And it's not out there. It's right here and it's right now. And we do the same thing, don't we? We're not really any different two thousand years later. We're always asking for things for God from God to give us so that we can get through this next day and it's as if in the midst of plenty that we starve. It's all here, it's all now, what Jesus is trying to tell us. We're missing the point. In the midst of God's presence, in the midst of his visitation, we keep looking elsewhere. of you like know? John the Baptist, are you the one that was expected or should we look for someone else? We're doing that constantly. And that keeps us on that hamster wheel. It keeps us from ever being able to be okay in our skin, right here, right now. Would we, would any of us really know Jesus if he were standing right in front of us, right here and right now? Would we? Would we accept his embrace walking down that road that Frank was walking but he turned and smiled and came to run to embrace us? Would we accept that? Or would that just be an impediment as we're trying to get to the buildings we know we need to get to? Have we lived our life in such a way that we are prepared? I'm going to read you just a little bit from Richard Rohr. He writes, Prayer lives in pure open moments of right here, right now. This is enough. This is fullness. If it is not here right now, It doesn't exist. If we don't know God now, why would we know God later? You get that? If we don't know God now, why would we know God later? If we don't see God now, would the eyes be prepared to see God later? The mystics say no. We will not recognize God later if we cannot recognize God now. It is a matter of seeing God now through the shadow And the disguise. The real question is, what does this moment have to say to me? Those who are totally converted come to every experience and ask not whether or not they liked it, whether or not you need to change it, but what does it have to teach? What's the message in this for me? What's the gift in this for me? How is God in this event? Where is God in this suffering? You know, this is the hardest thing that we can do. Think about that for just a second. To not judge your moments. To not look at them objectively and say, this is insignificant, this is significant, I pay attention here, I brush this off and move over here. To not judge people around us in exactly the same way. This is an important person. This one serves my agenda. This one is a road to this outcome. This person is not. I need to show them aside. This is someone I step over. This is someone I pay attention to. That constant compartmentalizing, that constant partitioning of all our moments and all the people in our lives is exhausting. And it keeps us from ever being here and now and recognizing the moment of our visitation, which is always now. It's always now. To be able to see everyone as equally deserving as equally human, as equally a part of our lives, even when they're acting unevenly. To deal with the uneven actions and behavior as we need to and as we must, to protect the people around us, but to maintain in our heart the connection with the essential equality that each one of us represents, that each of our moments represents, (coughs) and to start to learn something about God's love, which has no degree which has no favorites because all are favorites of God. How are we going to learn something about that incredible love that will finally dispel our own fear if we can't start to do a little bit of it ourselves and see that it is possible to even view life that way? There's this one crazy scene where Jesus describes the next life, just briefly. It's so rare that he does anything like that. But his little picture is that no one is given in marriage in Alam Haba, in the world to come. But people are like the angels in heaven. And that little bit, that little clue tells us that we're not going to have special relationships. We're not going to have significant others, husbands and wives, maybe even best friends as opposed to all the others who stand outside those circles of intimacy. Everyone will be our best friend. Everyone will be our husband and our wife and our significant other. Everyone will have that kind of connection because all will be bathed in that degreeless love. And if we can't start to glimpse it now, how are we going to recognize it then? How are we going to accept it then? Because I'll tell you right now, that sounds weird. Doesn't that sound Weird? <laughs> That sounds weird. I can't imagine not having my wife. I can't imagine not having my circle of friends. Jesus on this earth had his circle of closest friends. It's human to do so. But we're looking forward to a time when everything starts to even out. With the smile of those two figures on the road that turn, it's for us fully. And the next one, and the next one, and the next one, there is no differentiation. Everyone is greeted the same. Everyone gets paid the same. Everyone gets the calf killed and the party thrown. Can we even start to imagine that? Not if we don't start to practice it somehow, some way now and recognize the hour of our visitation. Let's read Mother Teresa again, if I can find it. Maybe this will bring her back into a different kind of clarity. I have an opportunity to be with Jesus 24 hours a day. Seeking the face of God in everything, everyone, all the time, and his hand in every happening. This is what it means to be contemplative in the heart of the world, seeing and adoring the presence of Jesus, especially in the lowly appearance of bread and in the distressing disguise of the poor. Each one of them is Jesus in disguise. Do you see how what she is saying, what Roar is saying, what Jesus is saying is all one and the same thing? They're all driving us in the same direction because they're all approaching this truth just from different perspectives, different expressions. But it's one thing, one thing that's going on. For Mother Teresa, the least of these that Jesus is speaking (coughs) about is the poor. And I guess I didn't read that yet because I'm just all over the place this morning. But let's just read this last bit, Matthew 25. This is the great scene of the separation of the sheep and the goats and he's talking to the people on his right you know? And he says, hey, come on in with me. Come on in the kingdom. Because when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I was naked, you clothed me. You visited me in prison. And the people say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of these. You did it to me. You did it to me. Even the least of these. Jesus is in the least of these. Jesus is the least of these. Mother Teresa sees the least of these in the poor. That turns out to be a real scholarly debate. I had no idea that people disagreed on who the least of these were. Sometimes it's the poor. Sometimes it's Jesus' actual physical kin, because he calls them brothers and sisters. Sometimes it's just relegated to the disciples. You know what? I think it's really all of those, or maybe none of those, because the least of these is anything that you see as insignificant in your life. This moment, this person, this job, this conversation, whatever you deem as insignificant, is the least of these. But we have to start paying attention because Jesus is the least of these. There is no insignificant moment in your life except the one that you don't participate in. To recognize the moment of your visitation is to be present to this moment right here and right now. To fully immerse in it. To find Jesus behind the eyes of the person that you're talking to, even if you don't like the person you're talking to, even if you're bored with the conversation, it doesn't matter. It is a sacred moment if you bring your presence to it. And more and more, if we can live our lives that way, we are recognizing our visitation. We are entering into everything the kingdom is all about. Jesus is always... The least of these. He sets himself up that way. It's his self portrait. He washes the feet. He is the servant. He is the vulnerable one, the unassuming one, the one that you wouldn't give a second glance to. That's who he is. But inside, from the inside out, is everything that there is if we can train ourselves to actually be there and see that. He's always riding the donkey. The cold, the colt of the donkey. And we are all the least of these as well. And that is the point, isn't it? That even if we see ourselves as least, if we don't think well of ourselves, if we are hard on ourselves, that's exactly what makes us special, significant. Because Jesus is the least of these. He's with us. He's in us. He's through us. as kingdom is as well. I wanted to end just a little paragraph or two, from Thomas Merton. Merton was a monk, a Trappist monk, some of you may be familiar with him, who thought that in order to get closer to God, what he needed to do was to separate himself from humanity. And he entered a cloistered monastery that kept him apart from all the people of the world except his community itself. And later on in life, after he had been a monk for 15, 20 years, he went out on a shopping trip downtown Louisville, Kentucky, because his monastery was in the, in the countryside, and he had an experience right in the shopping district, and he writes, Yesterday, in Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all of those people that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream, the dream of separateness, of a special vocation to be different. Thank God, thank God. I am only another member of the human race like all the rest. I have the immense joy of being a man, as if the sorrows of our condition could really matter once we begin to realize who and what we are. This sense of liberation from illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. A member of the human race. To think that such a commonplace realization should suddenly seem like news that one holds the winning ticket in a cosmic sweepstake. I have the immense joy of being man, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. There are no strangers. If only they could all see themselves as they really are, if only we could <laughs> see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. That it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. <laughs> Let's pray. just a moment, help us to see ourselves the way you see us. Walking around, shining like the sun. We need our own fourth and walnut moment where we can strip away the veneer, pull back the curtain for just a moment and see this reality. See you as the glue holding everything together as it really, really is. We want to see that, we want to know that, we want to experience that. Help us again to do whatever it takes whatever we have to risk, whatever steps we have to take, whatever resistance we have to overcome, to put ourselves in the position where that moment becomes realized. But we do know that we know because we have seen it for ourselves that there is so much more here than we normally deal with each day. Father, your love is overwhelming. It's incomprehensible. Help us to just taste a little bit so that we can go forward In case more and more as we go. Lose our fear and become completely free, knowing that you are with us and part of everything that we do, in every moment of our lives. We love you. We know you love us back. Thank you, Father. Let us never forget we can only do any of this love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's all stand.